0: Pain is not always bad for you. Sometimes the one who loves you best hurts you to help you. Like a good doctor, doctors are sworn to never do harm. But that doesn't mean they won't hurt you in order to heal you. There's a massive difference between hurt and harm. It's the difference between further suffering and future healing. So like, for example, I've had a lot of foot problems in my day. I don't know why. God's strange providence. But in God's kind providence, I've also had a lot of good doctors. You think about like an ingrown toenail or a planter's wart, just disgusting things that we suffer from as a result of Adam's fall. It actually requires a lot of pain to rid yourself of both of those things. Whether it's liquid nitrogen freezing to rid yourself of warts or numbing shots and clipping a new border of a toenail to get that ingrown one out of there, that's a lot of potential pain. For some of us, it's not still potential. (laughs) Good care is not always pleasant, but every good doctor knows that some healing requires pain. A good doctor can hurt in order to heal, because sometimes pain is for your good. It's incredibly counterintuitive for most of us, I think. We tend to think if it hurts, it must not be good for me. If it's painful, it can't be good. But sometimes it is. Sometimes good care is counterintuitive. I think we actually see some really good counterintuitive care in Mark chapter 4. In fact, it's the counterintuitive care of Christ. Jesus brings his disciples into a storm in order to ultimately save them from it. Listen to God's word in Mark chapter 4. Verses 35 to 41 as I read. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let, go, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What I want to argue from our passage this morning is that Jesus always cares for his people. And we'll see in the text two ways in which Jesus cares. By his presence and by his power. That's the big idea for us from God's word this morning. Jesus always cares for his people by his presence and by his power. We'll take the text in those two steps. First, Jesus presently cares for us. In verses 35 to 38, Jesus presently cares for us. Let's consider the perfect care of Christ. It's a constant, though sometimes counterintuitive, care. Notice what Mark tells us in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, So this event takes place on the same day as the parables we've been considering for the last two weeks in all of Mark chapter 4. Jesus stood on the shore and taught about the kingdom for the whole day, and then he got into the boat in this passage. You might remember the parables of the sower, or of the mustard seed, or Jesus' teaching about the lamp that shines brightly for all to see. You'll want those teachings in the back of your mind as you consider this text this morning the storm that we're all about to face. Because Mark put them all together for a reason. And the reason is simply this. Jesus is about to demonstrate the truth of his words by the power of his works. The storm-stopping miracle shows us again that Jesus is the king of this coming kingdom. He is the Lord even of nature. We can see the kingdom has come because the king displays his magnificent, unmatched power. To get there, notice what Jesus does. He leads his closest followers into the sea. You can see the idea comes from Jesus because he says it in verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. So he leaves the crowd, verse 36, that he's been teaching all day and takes only his disciples into the boat with him. And Mark tells us some other boats follow as well. But this is no tame lake. You don't just go jet skiing across the Sea of Galilee because it's known for terrible windstorms. This lake is infamous for sudden squalls, both at this time and even today. The eight-mile-wide sea is surrounded by many mountains, so a strong wind sends it into violent stirs. Jesus knows this. It actually doesn't take omniscience to know this. Everybody at the time would have known this. So don't miss the fact that Mark shows us in verses 35 and 36 that Jesus is leading them into the storm. Historically speaking, It's no surprise at all that a great windstorm arose in verse 37. It's so bad that the boat starts filling with water such that it might capsize and they all drown and die. If you've been out on a boat, you know just how quickly and terrifyingly these sorts of things can happen. I grew up in Boy Scouts. One summer we went down to Florida Sea Base and we spent a whole day out on the ocean fishing in a sailboat. And we'd catch the fish, and we'd come back to the camp and cook them at night. And I remember one day, very vividly, when the sun went down, and the waves got rough, and it's just overpowering. You didn't choose this. You didn't want this. You're in the control of the ocean now. There's not much in this world that's as evidently powerful as a vast body of water. It's true what they say. A little water can't hurt, but a lot of water can kill you. So the boat of the disciples is filling up, and they're understandably fearful of dying. Now, for us, I think this at least means that we shouldn't expect that serving Christ will be struggle-free. Not only is there a great trial in this passage for the closest associates of Jesus at that time, but Jesus is the one who brought them into it. See, following Christ often includes struggle and even great suffering at times. J.C. Ryle put it well, Jesus has never promised that we shall see no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons without which we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. Ryle concludes, on the last day, we shall thank God for every storm. And it's not just in J.C. Ryle, it's a biblical idea. You remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 71? Church, we want to all be able to say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Look back at Mark 4, now in verse 38. Notice where Jesus is. He's in the back of the boat, that's the stern, and he's asleep. This Savior sleeps through the storm. This shows us, at least, that he's a true human who needs sleep just like the rest of us. But I think it also shows us that he truly trusts in God. Jesus' sleep in the midst of a storm declares his trust, his total trust in God. That no matter what life brings, he trusts his Father, always cares for him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures which teach how sleep expresses faith. Jesus is the perfect human who perfectly obeys God and his word. But the disciples rebuke him for it. they wake him up and say, don't you care about us? It's a windstorm. I imagine it sounded like that. (laughs) Notice how in verse 38, they address him. Teacher. But he's not just some good teacher. He's their maker. He made them. And everything, even this storm that they're in the midst of? The answer to their question is obvious, and it's been obvious all along, not just in our text, but in all of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the God who made them and takes care of them, so of course he cares for them. Not only that, but this same good God came to save his people From their sins. That's what all of Mark is telling us about. It's as one children's book has it. Did he care for them? What a silly question. He came to die for them. Now, I trust that many of us listening would consider ourselves Christians. But do we ever act like these disciples do here in this passage? When things stop going your way, Do you get grumpy with God about your unmet expectations and your trampled on desires? I imagine many of us know where to turn when things fall apart, but how do we turn there? Perhaps we know we should go to the Lord because he's always and only ever where our help comes from, but how, how do we go to him? Especially in the face of great sorrow or suffering or pain. Do you go in faith with a lament? Or do you go in unbelief with an accusation? Faith turns to God and asks Him to do what He alone can do Deliver us from this distress, O Lord. But faith also also trusts God is good and wise and sovereign, even when those prayers remain unanswered. Faith trusts the goodness of God, even when it can't be seen or isn't experienced. So what I hope we're seeing in this passage is the counterintuitive care of Christ. He's caring for them the whole time. He doesn't just start caring for them when the storm stops. He leads them into the storm to expose their weakness so that they might turn to him for help. He sleeps in the midst of the storm so that they might recognize him as the only place to turn. And of course, ultimately, he came from heaven for us and for our salvation. So if we're his, if we belong to Jesus... He only ever abandons us to ourselves, but for a moment. And it's always to renew our zeal for him, our trust in him, our hope in him alone. I'm so encouraged by watching so many of you when we take the Lord's Supper every other week. I know that in this small church, we have people who are the only believer in their family, You don't know any other Christians related to them by blood. We have people who have buried children. We have people who have faced social isolation for their faith in Christ. And so many more things we could talk about. And yet each of you continues to put that little cracker in your mouth each week when we take the Lord's Supper. And I'm just struck by this profound thought. That's what faith looks like. Faith trusts that the promises of God are true, even when the goodness of God can't be seen. You know what unbelief does? It refuses to take the meal the Lord gave us. It dies without the satisfaction of Christ and the salvation that he alone provides. All the things that are pictured in the supper that we take. And so, dear Christian, if it ever feels like Jesus is asleep in your storms, I partly want to say, welcome to the club. (laughs) Feels that way to me a lot, too. But I want you to remember, most of all, that he never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's right there with you. Just like the storm in our text, Jesus stays with his people he presently cares for them. He's there in that boat, not in any of the other boats that Mark told us about. Jesus never sends his people into trials alone, but always goes with them himself. In this day, by his spirit that he puts within us, one day soon, physically, forever. So if you're tempted to doubt his present care for you, Just look to his cross and his resurrection which promises his presence to you forever. And remember that cross comes before resurrection. What's the shape of Christianity? We need to fill the tomb before we can empty it. Suffering and then glory. Remind yourself of what you know to be true. Return to God's word, consider his promises, fellowship with his people, singing his praises, singing his word as we've done this morning. This is one of the reasons we gather every week, to encourage one another in exactly these sorts of ways. This is why we so often pray for those who are struggling in faith with depression or loneliness or some other struggle of faith. The Lord Jesus knows what we need and he constantly cares for us with his presence Often through his people, the church. He also knows we need trials, spiritual pain, if you will, in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We need trials in this life to expose our weakness and to drive us to him. We actually sang about this last week in our time together. Do you remember it? What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? This is verse two of Christ our hope in life and death, which we sang last week together. It's pictured in this text. The waves of our life are sent by God to drive us to him as our only hope. And that's him caring for us. He made us and takes care of us, always. In every moment, even the hard ones, maybe especially the hard ones, Jesus is caring for us causing us to let go of the things of this life and put our hope solely on him. So may we be able to say with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the waves that press me up against the rock of ages. Jesus presently cares for us. Now let's consider our second point from the text. In verses 39 to 41, Jesus powerfully cares for us. And this is a specifically powerful, life-saving care. Jesus powerfully cares for us. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Here, Jesus silences the storm by speaking. He speaks his powerful word And it stops the storm immediately, in an instant. One one trusted commentator I read this week took the peace be still that you're seeing in your ESV in front of you and he rendered it, shut up. (laughs) Christ speaks to silence the storm. We're meant to mark the striking contrast in the text. From verse 37, the great windstorm, to verse 39, the great calm. And it takes a great savior to get from great windstorm to great calm. Only a great savior can do that. The one who led them into the storm brings it to a screeching halt, like ripping up the emergency brake in your car when the thing's moving. But it's even more sudden than that. More certain than that. Everybody watching should be clear. This is a work of God. It's a lot like in Genesis 1, where God creates everything by speaking. Everything comes into existence in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of the chapter is God speaking order into the chaos. He orders the light and the night, the lands and the sea the plants and the animals, and even people, man and woman, humanity. We should see Jesus in this text doing what only God can do. Only the one who made the sea with a word could also stop it with just a word. As J.C. Ryle said, those words were the words of him who first created all things, The elements knew the voice of their master, and like obedient servants, were quiet at once. Come on, somebody. Now, it's the word of God which does the work of God in this text. We need to see this. It's the word of God which does the work of God in this text. And spoiler alert, it's always the word of God which does the work of God. Jesus accomplishes his holy will by speaking his holy word. So for us, this means we should not expect to find the will of God for our lives apart from the scriptures. For the saint here struggling in sin, are you trying to fight temptation and grow in holiness apart from your Bible? The Lord gives us all that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. So we should seek Him there, and by grace we'll find Him. And for the suffering saint, it's as we've seen only a great Savior can get us from great storm to great calm. So don't forget who your Lord Jesus is in your trials, or that He's with you in them. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer in trials because he's the suffering servant in our midst. And Jesus is also more powerful than your greatest trial, no matter what it is, because he's God, powerfully ruling over every single moment of your life. Look back at the text now in verse 40. Notice how Jesus responds to the disciples. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In short, Jesus confronts their unbelief. Because biblical care of souls includes both courage and compassion. If you want to care for real people who are really struggling, you need to be tough and tender. And it takes great wisdom to know when to do which. So we should pray and ask the Lord for help. Give us wisdom that we might care well for people, real people who really suffer and struggle in faith. Sometimes good care requires rebuke. That's what we see Jesus doing here. There's also a clear contrast in verse 40 between fear and faith. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And Jesus wants his followers to have faith and not fear. Jesus wants their fear to drive them to faith. The fear that's provoked by the trials ought to drive them to faith in the one who has been teaching them about the powerful kingdom. The one who is the king, who brings this kingdom, who's standing right there in front of them. Now many of you know that my family and I have been in a... Uh, A stormy summer, if you will. A summer of storms. Our infant son, John, went to meet God far sooner than we hoped. And in ways that are almost completely a mystery to me still, God's wise plan for us included 17 days with a son we so dearly love. The Lord chose to give him to us and to take him back much sooner than we all prayed for And in light of this storm, I confess great fear about what's next. It's all the things I'm sure most of you could imagine. Should we try to have another child? What if it happens again? Are we somehow sinfully replacing our son? Can we bear another pregnancy and birth right now? Anna and I are still seeking the Lord in this. But we know what the Bible says. We know that it speaks to our issue. Children are a good gift from God. God opens and closes the womb as he wishes. The Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. He gives and he takes away and his name is to be blessed forever. We believe it's all true because of God's grace toward us in Christ. His spirit persuades us that his word is true, that his promises speak to our problems. As I've said, like these disciples here in Mark 4, we have a lot of reasons to be afraid. But I think we have more reasons to have faith. Faith. He hasn't left us or forsaken us. Jesus himself is with us. He's caring for us even now, maybe especially now. His care is constant and powerful. Brothers and sisters, if if we would continue to follow Christ, we must all have faith over fear. Jesus can always be trusted no matter what storms you face in your life, no matter what waves are flooding and filling your boat, he never stops caring for us. The the peace of Christ does not come because of the absence of trials. It comes because of the presence of Jesus. It's the power of the king in our hearts. That's what gives us peace. Notice the lingering question the text leaves us with in verse 41. The disciples ask one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Naturally, in light of what he's done, the disciples are left wondering, Who is this guy? Who is this man? Who could do such things? We're meant to conclude from Mark's gospel that this is God become man to save his people from their sins, to reclaim his rebellious creation by his powerful kingdom. That's what he's doing. The wind and the sea here in verse 41, it's likely an allusion to the Old Testament to make that very point. This is God. Most commentators will point to Psalm 107, which we heard as our scripture reading this morning in the service. It speaks about those who Go about in ships to do business on the great waters. When they find themselves in distress from storms, they cry out to the Lord God because He alone can deliver them. He alone can make still the storm and hush the waves. That's what verse 29 of Psalm 107 says. So again, Jesus here is doing what God alone can do. So we should rightly conclude that He's God. I think a reader of the Old Testament at this time would also naturally think about God's other wondrous works, like when he told Moses to divide the sea and dry up the ground so the Israelites could escape captivity from the evil Pharaoh. God does these mighty acts, Exodus 14 tells us, so that the people might fear the Lord and believe in him. That's always the purpose of God's mighty saving acts, that his people might believe in him. So in Mark 4, Jesus has God's power and authority. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Lord of nature. He's its maker, and so he exercises perfect and sovereign control over it. I think we sort of all intuitively get how big of a deal this is. We understand doctors can often heal and help sick people feel better. They can treat symptoms, sometimes even curing diseases. But who in the world could stop a hurricane before the hordes of the wounded flood the emergency room? I mean, I bet none of us has gone outside during this hot Texas summer and looked up at the sky and shouted, RAIN! Heavens, I command you to open up! Because we just know our words don't have that kind of power. Nobody but Jesus manifests something by speaking. Nobody but God has a powerful word like that. It's just obvious, or it should be obvious to all of us, that that's the case. We can't control our circumstances in the way most of us would want And we certainly can't control nature the way Jesus does here. In fact, that's the key of this passage. Jesus brings them into the storm to expose their abiding weakness, that they might depend on him for saving help and hope. He shows his power to save their lives and show them who he is. Because there's actually a fate worse than death. And it's judgment. It's the judgment that every single one of us will face one day soon. After we die, we will stand before God and we will give an account to him of everything we've done and said and thought and desired. Every interaction we've had, every careless word we've spoken, and we will show that God is righteous and that we are sinful. That he made us and he has a plan for our lives and we've all sinned against him. We've not done what he said we should do. And we have done what you said we shouldn't do. That's what the Bible calls sin. Passages like this one are given to us to help us understand our weakness and inability. That we cannot save ourselves. We need someone else to save us. Jesus is the only one who can save us by his power. He can save your life physically, yes, like he does in this passage. More importantly, you need him to save your soul forever forever spiritually. You need someone to stand in your place and to be righteous before God, to do what God says. You need someone to pay the penalty that we all deserve to pay, which is death for our sin. Because God is good, he will punish sin. Because God is gracious, he sent Jesus that he might not have to punish your sin in you because he punished it in him. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to save God's people from their sins. Anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him can be saved forever and go to heaven when they die and live with God forever. Declared righteous even though you're not because Jesus is. So if you're not following Christ, if what I just said is not true of you, we call that gospel good news for a reason and I'd love to talk to you more. After the service, I'll be right back there if you want to know what any of that might look like in your life. I would encourage you to consider the claims of Christ on your life. Turn from sin, turn to him, he alone can save. For the Christian, my guess is that there are at least two kinds of saints listening. Some of us need the encouragement that Jesus can still the storms of our life. We need to see him in this text as Lord of nature and be comforted by his strength and power. But I suspect some of us find that a hard truth to hear right now. Perhaps it feels either too superficial or shallow or foreign to you to truly trust. It's often very hard to believe what we cannot see. So for you, brother or sister, I want to encourage you with this. Jesus Never sends us into a storm. He only ever brings us into them. The difference between sending and bringing is massive, too. It's the difference between the presence of Christ or the absence of Christ. Jesus brings us into the storms. It's a crucial and vital difference. Jesus himself comes with his people into the storm. Often he's right there next to us, perhaps seemingly sleeping. And we need only to ask for his help. I cannot promise you that he will stop the storm you face. Not today. But I believe with all of my heart, and I can promise you that one day, every storm and trial will end. Because one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory. And he will bring his people safely home to a land where there are no storms. There are no waves. There are no strong winds that send trials into the lives of God's people. In the meantime, while we wait for his coming, Jesus comforts us always with his presence and his power. Jesus always cares for his people. He presently cares for us and he powerfully cares for us. Let's pray and ask for God's help to believe his powerful word. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us in Mark chapter 4, and we pray that you would give us grace to believe what we've heard from the scriptures, to trust that Jesus always cares for us, his people. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here who don't know the Lord Jesus, who aren't rightly related to you through him, that they would see their weakness, their inability, and turn to Christ and be saved. Would you help all of the members of this church to make it home to heaven where there are no more storms? We pray that you would send Jesus soon. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.